This episode is part of an Ottoman history podcast series that focuses on work that examines the past through visual sources. To access images associated with this episode, as well as other episodes and reading material related to the visual past, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, and check out the series tab. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Emily Neumeyer. And today we have with us Ethem Eldem. He's professor of history at Boazici University, and he is one of the organizers of a recent exhibition at the Research Center for Anatolian Civilizations, or Anamed in Turkish. Uh, the exhibition is about photography in the Ottoman Empire, and it's titled, titled Camera Ottomana, Photography and the Moder- Modernity in the Ottoman Empire, 1840-1914. to Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So let's get started by setting some groundwork um, When did photography first come to the Ottoman Empire? Well, apparently immediately after its invention, 39, 40 at the latest, uh, we already have traces. I'm sure somebody will come up with one document that proves it came in in, uh, in November and not in, in, in October and not November 39 or whatever. But I mean, pretty, pretty much immediately after its invention in France. I mean, if you go for the Daguerre version of history. And in the Ottoman Empire, what were some of the first uh, traces of photography? Where did we see it uh, in, the, in the empire? There are two major areas. One is the local consumption, that is portraiture within the Ottoman Empire, with foreigners until the 1850s. Foreigners meaning Italians, Frenchmen, uh, Brits, and whatever, who set up their, their studio in, in Istanbul, in Izmir, I suppose, also. And the other medium is, of course, travelers. Uh, the other access to uh, photography through the Ottoman Empire, or, or uh, the other access of the Ottoman Empire to photography is through travelogues, through travelers who now, instead of drawing, will photograph. So that starts with Egypt, especially. Um, Note that the photographs are taken, and then in the travelogues, they're generally reproduced in the form of engravings. But uh, still, that's how... So there are two major avenues of entry of photography into the Ottoman Empire. One is for local consumption, that is, studios settled in the Ottoman Empire. The other is about traveling photographers who generally accompany um, travelers, um, as they used to travel in the 18th and earlier 19th century, and who document uh, the sites with photography. So the travelers are basically, they're photographing landscapes, the studios are photographing portraits. and so Exactly. Okay. There's some kind of a division of labor uh, between... Um, traveling and and settled photographers with the development of the the portable camera the the photography moves outside of the studios uh um into the all different spaces in the Ottoman Empire. So after that, uh, who's also uh, utilizing this technology? Well, that's one thing we're not really extremely well informed about. I mean, the the term portable camera is very relative. I mean, the cameras in the 40s were portable too. I mean, if the guys could uh, photograph the the pyramids, they had to be portable in one way. Uh, But they were cumbersome. And the... um, uh, the uh, exposure time was extremely high, so it was. It's not just the size and portability of the of the machine; it's also mm-hmm. the performance in terms of shutter um, exposure time. Um, by the 1880s, you start to have 
cameras that you can more or less call portable because they can be managed more or less easily by a single person uh, and have a, a, a very short time of exposure. But the real portable, the Kodak and whatever, is really in the uh, 1910s. That's when amateur photographers start to, you know, just grab a camera and take pictures. So what, what, it, what we know very little about is that. Uh, non-studio, non-professional, amateur um, uh, photography, who, um, there are a couple of pages in Servetti Funun, that illustrated magazine, about um, amateur photographers of Istanbul and whatever. It gives us a sense of, you know, what they would do, which is take pictures of the Bosphorus and of, of the streets and whatever. Uh, but there's no systematic archiving, uh, no documentation on this kind of activity. Yeah, we were talking earlier that uh, the Kodak cameras, we, when we say portable camera, we think of you know something you can just put in your pocket, but of yeah. course that doesn't really even come until the 20th century, early yeah. 20th century, and uh, we, we say portable, but you know you read in archives you know people talking about having to lug around um, boxes and palm boxes and right. glass plates. Um, right. it, was a, it was a very cumbersome hobby. <laughs> and expensive. And expensive. And expensive, which is crucial. Right. One of the things we noticed in the exhibit is that it's organized around, I mean, the first part of it is organized around the studios that begin to pop up in Istanbul and around the empire. Um, Could you talk about some of those? And I noticed that um, one of the things that was most prominent is that um, it was often Armenians and Greeks and um, basically non-Muslim subjects of the empire who started opening these studios you talk about maybe why that was or sure. how that happened? Well, uh, the, uh, the starting point was foreigners. I mean, the first photographers to settle in, in Istanbul and other Ottoman cities, to the extent of our knowledge, uh, were foreigners. By the 1850s, you start to have the first uh, locals, the first natives, quote-unquote, and those are either like Pascal Seba, Christian Arabs, or like Abdullah, uh, um, Armenians, or like Andriomenos and, and uh, Kargopulo, uh, Greeks. Um, there are no professional photographers of the Muslim creed until probably the 1880s and the 1890s. There are some nights, and generally they're associated with some kind of an official uh, duty, the army. It's a little bit like a parallel of what happens in painting, uh, the first Ottoman painters being military painters, and you know what they say about military intelligence, and you know, and um, and um, you have the same phenomenon with uh, with uh, photographers uh, on the Muslim side. Why? Because they're better connected. Because they have more options in this kind of uh, endeavor than uh, than the Ottomans. I mean, it's very difficult to talk about this division of labor without falling into some kind of an Orientalist cliche of mm, the ruling Muslims and uh, uh, the the thriving uh, uh, non-Muslims. But it ends up being that to a certain extent. There's no way around the basic recognition that for an Ottoman subject of a certain standing, of a certain education, the best option is not to open a business or to it is to find some kind of an employment in something that is exclusively reserved to them which is public function which is uh, government offices the army and whatever so there is a there is a, a, a de facto division of labor and that opens up or forces 
um, non-Muslims into non-governmental uh, uh, roles, among which trade and whatever, but also the arts, and things that require some kind of a familiarity with Western culture, with uh, Western networks of uh, import, export, everything, um, is, is, uh, that, that's part of the, uh, of the way in which it develops. So there's no way of saying that's the reason why, but, you know, there's an underlying kind of tendency of the two major groups to go to part ways and to go in, in specific uh, directions. I thought it was interesting that we started, uh, the, ex the exhibition starts with studio photography and the indivi individual patronage of these studios' portraits. And um, I was interested in how this developed later on into the exhibition. We started covering... Um, other uses, other uses for photography. So we saw how uh, the Sultan also became um, very interested in photography and started to use it as a mechanism for documenting the empire. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, um, the exhibition is a joint venture, and uh, not everyone comes from the same background. Um, there were four actors. Uh, I'm one of them, Zeynep Chidik, uh, who does mostly urban history and, and uh, architectural history and Orientalism mm -hmm. was the other. Bahatina Sunjai, who's not a, um, a trained historian, but is a collector and a specialist of uh, Ottoman uh, photography, um, was a third person. And uh, there were two uh, people from the Getty Institute, Francis Turpak and... Um, um, Peter Bonfito, who contributed through archaeology and photography through the Getty Collection. So it's, it's a match, it's a mix and match of different perspectives. And we started the exhibition with what was most familiar to the, um, to the, uh, the average visitor. Everybody knows about Abdullah and Seba and Kargopulo, what they know is irrelevant. They know something. They know about right. these things. If you ask me, I'm sick and tired of those studios. I mean, mm -hmm. I think one of the problems is that we have to go beyond the studios, right. which is one thing we try to do inside. Uh, because I think this is a very, very biased way of looking at, at photography, and it ends up being extremely repetitive. I'm sick and tired of seeing the, the same Sebah photographs over and over again being commented in more or less the same way without any real historical documentary evidence. So that's my problem with visual culture. So I'm, my position is to try to look at photography as a historian and do not just the history of photography by trying to trace down the, uh, the, 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 the pioneers. I mean, I really don't care. We know now we know about who them. the pioneers are. Right. So one more photograph by Seba is not going to change what we know about the pioneering role of that particular studio. So what I'm interested in is mostly what really happens at ground level, at grassroots level, what people do. I'm, you know, I mean, all the Sebah production or all the Kargopulo or all the uh, Abdullah um, production, as far as we know, as far as it has been studied, is either odalisks and, and uh, you know, um, orientalist stuff, or portraits of pashas, uh, princes, uh, sultans, and whatever. Isn't there more? I mean, you're talking about a city of one million. Uh, and 
the more is extremely difficult to get a hold of. Um, you have minor studios, Vafiadis, Andriomenos even, and you have tons of others which we don't even know about because they're not part of the material that is being studied. And the reason for that is that the material that's being studies, studied is, comes from collections and not from archives. Collections which are market-based, idiosyncratic, personal, subjective ways of collecting what people are interested in and not systematic collections of anything that relates to photography. Right. So we started with the conventional Let's give people a taste of, you know, Sebach and whatever. Give them a sense that the essential unit is the studio. That's the production unit, right. if you want. And that there, there's a number of them. And this is best illustrated by the backside of these photographs. Then move on to uh, the, uh, the empire. And that's extremely important because that's where the greatest losses have been experienced. I mean, when you say that it's mostly Greek and Armenian, especially for photographers, what this means is that with the massacres, with the genocide, with the, um, uh, the deportation, with everything that happened between, say, 1912 and 1922, right. most of the production outside of Istanbul has been destroyed. Right. What could have been a very interesting alternative to the high end of photography, that is the Pera Studios, right. has disappeared. And production, and, imperial yeah. production. Well, even the, the imperial production, that's another problem. I mean, mm -hmm. how imperial is it? How much, right. how much agency can we really attribute to, uh, to, to the Sultan? That's another thing. He's not Nadir Shah. He's not, what's his name? Nasruddin uh, Shah. Right. Mean, the Iranian Shah in the 1860s took a camera and and uh, took photos in his own harem. Ottomans never did that. And just because you take a photograph doesn't mean that people will necessarily see it. That's yet another problem. But at least I, I'm, I think it's a, a, a sultan or a shah mm. who takes photos himself is much more interesting than a sultan who uh, commissions photographers to take photographs of what he thinks is relevant to the PR or whatever of his of his empire. I think these are two totally different uh, uh, contexts and uh, we have a tendency to attribute to Abdul Hamid something that is much more of a bureaucratic and systematic uh, survey uh, than a real personal involvement. So that's another touchy issue, mm -hmm. uh, something that is a little too easily said. The Abdul Hamid albums, without knowing who saw them, and we know that, you know, the, uh, the Washington album, the London albums, uh, nobody, no, nobody even lifted the, 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 the cover of these albums until the 1980s. Right, there was more of a diplomatic so, exchange. Exactly, I mean, it's the story of, the, of the, the, the tree that falls in the forest and nobody hears it. I mean, what? What can you say about an album that was never viewed, except that you can try to read the mind of the, the person, the institution that created the album, but you can't uh, start assuming that it had an impact or it didn't. But meanwhile, um, in your essay uh, that accompanies the exhibition, and by the way, there's a, a, a great volume of essays that accompanies the exhibition also by the name Camera Ottomana, and um, in this essay you, you discuss how... Um, there are different kinds of albums and different kinds of audiences, and that's not necessarily... Um, with the Abdul Hamid albums, we can really consider it uh, essentially 
diplomatic exchange objects. You know, they sort of show up and say, "Here's a, here's an album of photographs." And yeah. say, Thank you very nice, and it goes in the vault with and everything most, else. Most crowned uh, heads did that. Of I course, mean, it was sort of this was a, a sort of a, a decorum of of sure of exchange um, between rulers, but that wasn't necessarily the change. The case for other albums. So the al- you you mentioned the al- the the other famous album that I think people know about is the costume album that was in Vienna, sure. um, which is another yet another case in terms of viewership and audience. Yeah, and that has been done and redone and overdone, uh, and that again uh, we have to move further. Even in that case, I don't think anything has been done properly on the reception of that album, right. on the context in which it was created, on the text yeah. of the album. I mean. I looked at the the text, because I was working on Osman Hamdi in Baghdad, I looked at the Baghdad text, and it was completely lifted from a French traveler from the 1850s. So what do you do with that? I mean, we have a tendency, or they have a tendency, to say, okay, this is signed by Osman Hamdi and Marie de it is their text. And then you realize that it's it's a patchwork, that the uh, the Istanbul text is in fact a text that Marie de Launay wrote in 1867 for the uh, for the Paris exhibition. You realize that uh, the Baghdad text is lifted by I don't know what traveler from the 1850s. Uh, what's next? So uh, we need some kind of a critical reading of this before we start. You know, uh, that's the problem of visual culture, historical approaches to visual culture, you cannot just rely on the image. One thing you really get from the exhibition and going and seeing these objects is that a lot of times when photographs are reproduced in uh, secondary publications, they're often divorced from uh, their context. And when you go to the exhibition, one of the things you see is um, that they, most not most, but a lot of these photographs were... Uh, embedded within texts, within books, within albums, and um, they're sort of, in many ways, should be considered within book culture and uh, media culture and things sure. like that. Something that really struck me is that, sort of with the limits of technology, um, how, uh, especially in, in newspapers, how such strikingly different images would appear right next to each other you know because you only had you could only put it on this these images on one page right so you'd have sort of some something completely unrelated juxtaposed next to you know pretty uh, startling images of you know say murder or you know catastrophe and it was very striking how the sort of these visual juxtapositions come about but you don't really appreciate it until you no. see the objects themselves at you know in the exhibition exactly i mean the, the thing is the thing is if you really want to talk about the i mean when you look at a photograph there is of course the photographer there's the sitter or there's you know whomever is on the photograph if you're, if you're talking about some kind of a human group or people um, then there's the production and the insertion of that photograph into a certain medium. It could be a book, it could be a, a catalog, it could be a, um, um, an album, uh, whatever. And then there's the reception, there's the diffusion or the, the dissemination of the image. Right. And then there's the, the, the reception, the audience. Now, you can't have the one without the other. I mean, you can, obviously, but it's incomplete. I mean, if an image is produced and you cannot trace it down to its audience, your historical vision of that image is incomplete. All you can say is it was produced with a certain intention, but you can't even be sure that it was 
consumed with any, uh, in any way and with any consciousness, which is why I've concentrated on two media, which I think are the only ways in which at this point we can start talking about audience and uh, connect that with image. One is the press, the illustrated press, Books, of course, but the press more than books. Right, exactly. The, the weekly press. magazines, you know. Mm -hmm. Media cult. Exactly. Media. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Mass culture. postcards. Postcards, postcards mm -hmm. are fascinating Absolutely. because they give you a sense of how disconnected image can be from text, from intent, for whatever. When you have, you realize that most of the postcards that circulate, that you, you can buy on, on eBay or whatever, or in, these postcards are generally from postcard collectors who formed some kind of a weird network, a nerdy network of people who exchanged postcards through mail. So people in France, men and women alike, it's, it's fascinating to see how many women you have, mm -hmm. and they have correspondence in, uh, in Istanbul like they would in Bursa, in Salonika, or I suppose in Tonkin or in in, in uh, Shanghai, and they exchange postcards and they have their preferences. You get a postcard saying, "Oh, please send me uh, pictures with flowers or whatever." So that's how that's most of the the, the the consumption of of postcards. And there, the postcards are no longer a medium of communication; they're just a collectible object, mm. and people choose them according to their 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 taste in images and whatever. That's one side of it. The other is that it's, it's the SMS of the time. Mm -hmm. That is, if you want to correspond, it's, it's a very speedy communication, and most of the postcards are used internally in Istanbul just to send out a message to, to a friend, to, uh, to family. And then people do not pick the, um, uh, the, 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 the postcard on the basis of what's on the image. They just pick a postcard and mm -hmm. write whatever they have uh, to say on the back. So you have a totally disconnected uh, text. And then, if you're happy, if you're lucky, you have those very rare cases where there is a connection between the text and the image. And then you can say something about what these people mean, how they viewed that image, and how they expect their correspondent to react and to receive that image. That's what makes it fascinating. But then again, you cannot concentrate only on those rather exceptional cases where there's a meaning, uh, knowing that the majority of cases are meaningless. Right. And, and that is part of visual culture. Visual yes. culture is not about meaningful images. It's all about images. It's about images even if they're completely disconnected with reality and whatever. And as long as we don't do that, we're not going to have a proper understanding of what that culture was about. Right. And something, to get back to audience and reception, to shift to, to that topic, uh, I think a lot of times we focus on the intention of, the author, as, as you were saying, and one thing that, um, one photograph, a uh, series of uh, images that I think that people can find in the exhibition that's really fascinating is the uh, incidence of the Macedonian uh, severed head yes. controversy, and that's a great, so if you could talk about that, it's it's a great example of how um, the intention, there's there's damage control, and you don't, you, you lose control over, uh, the, the Ottomans were lost control from the very yeah. beginning, and there's there's a bit of a... a this, it's it's an interesting case. In 1903, this is something that years ago, uh, Ipekio Smaolo came up with uh, through the Ottoman archives, okay. without the images. She 
came uh, across the, uh, the Ottoman documents that talked about uh, this severed heads crisis. So what is the event that these that this photograph is supposed What's to fascinating record. is that this is something triggered in 1903 by the publication in Western magazines, L'Illustration, La Vie uh, Illustrée mm -hmm. Berliner, Illustrierte Zeitung, and whatever, of this scene depicting from two to six Ottoman officials, gendarmes, um, policemen, whatever, posing with, in, in full uniform and with their 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 guns uh, around a roster uh, kind of thing, a pulpit, holding two to three, sometimes four, severed heads of bandits, Macedonian bandits. Now this uh, starts, this is something that explodes in 1903. It's very ephemeral because it disappears in, in May. It starts in, uh, in February. And there's, on the Ottoman side, you can follow it up and realize that the photographs that these magazines have been using were photographs that were taken in the, in the 1890s of brigands uh, that were, you know, eshkia, uh, that were, um, who were, who were killed and then now. So you have one side of the, of the picture which is about a very old tradition in the Ottoman lands of using heads as trophies and as proof of death. Mm -hmm. But this transfigured by mo modernity through photograph, instead of sending the, uh, the heads back to Istanbul, whatever, to be exposed wherever, you, take, you have a photo, a souvenir taken uh, with it. So it's, it's, a, it's an illustrated trophy. But in 1903, at the, t at the height of the Macedonian crisis, these foreign um, um, journalists, Albert Mallet is one of them, uh, come across these photographs that are sell sold as, as souvenirs in, in, in photograph studios in the region um, and publish them as proof of recent massacres in Macedonia. So there's a totally different intent that of accusing the Hamidian administration of atrocities against the Macedonian people. So it's very interesting to see how a picture taken in, in the 1890s in, of course, granted an atrocious, a still rather ugly context, but one that is totally different from that of the 1903 uh, rebellion and whatever, is used in order to move the Western audiences um, against the Hamidian um, administration and its atrocities in Macedonia. That's what I call the power of images. That image, and, and once it's out there, it's... You lose control. You do lose control to a certain extent. I don't know exactly how this ends up. I, I would need to look at the French and, and British, the French archives, to really see how this is solved on the French side, because uh, Albert Mallet will never talk about it uh, again. So I think that the Ottomans are, in one way or another, able to say, yes, these are authentic photographs, but from the 1890s, so they're out of context. This is not something, you know. But still, it gives you a sense of how powerful the image is. And what's ironic from my perspective is that this is the conjuncture of two different things. One is um, uh, Ipekios Maoulou's work on Macedonia uh, during the crisis where she comes uh, across this. The other is my finding 
the original photographs in Sinan Kuneda's collection and using them to illustrate my, my exhibition and catalog on death uh, mm. in Istanbul in, uh, in, in, tw in 2005 or, or whatever. So uh, images and, and images therefore come with a story and they come with a very complex story, a multi-layered story which is made of truth, half-truths and lies. But that's the story of that image. If you just look at the image and start reading the image, quote unquote, there's not much you can do in terms of uh, really giving it a historical context. Well, I think anybody who has uh, experience with the internet knows that once an image is out there, <laughs> there's not much you can do about it. So I think this is also a very uh, sure. contemporary problem as well. It's interesting to see this happening uh, in 1903. So, I mean, you've emphasized here, um, kind of going beyond, well, I guess you've emphasized two things. One is that the fact that images can circulate without context, without text, uh, and can function as a very powerful type of visual culture. On the other hand, you know, you've also said you want to go beyond the aesthetic, you want to find uh, the world beyond the Sabah and Abdullah Frere uh, studios, and, you know, go to the archives to expose that. So, you know, where are these archives? How do you access them? I'm not sure they're, they're, they exist. That's, right. that's the problem. There's, there's destruction. There's contemporary destruction. There's the genocide. There's uh, the massacres that have wiped out part of the cultural heritage of Anatolia, and that includes photographs. So that's one thing. But there's also a destruction going on now by the choices that collectors make of high-quality photographs against uh, um, ordinary photographs. And as I said, high-quality photographs, once you've done them, you've been there, it's done. It's not interesting. I mean, people will try to squeeze something out of it. I've, I've heard someone even claim that for these Turkish lady photographs. If the lady was lying on a sofa, it was an Orientalist uh, uh, picture. If the, the lady was upright and, uh, uh, and with just a veil, then it was a real Turkish lady. You know, I mean, that's how far we've gone in our need to read and overread images because we're too lazy to look at sources. I mean, look at what people have to say about, uh, ab about images. I, I start my essay with an excerpt from Basiret Ali uh, about his reactions to photographs that are exhibited at the window of a, of a photographic studio. That's a voice from then that talks about these images. He may be wrong, he may be biased, that's not the question. At least he is a contemporary, he's talking about what he's seeing, whereas we have a tendency to talk about what we imagine, and we already have some kind of a, a, a teleology in mind, and you know, Orientalism is so, and, sub, uh, and uh, subaltern studies, and post-colonial, so we have, we have the models that fit everything, and we can just squeeze a couple of images into that, and that's it. No. I, I've just finished an article on vernacular photography in the Ottoman Empire, and I've been able to find some ways of discovering 
links between Ottoman photography and a local tradition without having to go through Orientalism right. or through uh, Western uh, mm -hmm. norms. And it's possible because there are always traces of, of, of such uh, material. I do have one archival source that I trust will give me that kind of thing. It's the Ottoman Bank staff uh, photographs. Right. Because you're talking about 6,000 uh, photographs, which gives you the possibility of cross-tabulating the image with whatever factual information you have on each individual. And that would give you the possibility of trying to dissociate, deconstruct in a sense, all the elements that make a photograph, that is the sitter and his identity, the sitter and his costume, the photographer and his studio, the props, everything, because you have repetitions. So if you start seeing, uh, for example, a subaltern, a kavas or whatever, a, an underling, uh, in a bank um, being photographed in exactly the same studio with the same props as a higher up Clark, and if you can see a difference, and you do see a difference in the posture, then you're talking about something that you can analyze through controlled variables, and without having to resort to um, uh, to um, your your inventiveness and whatever. So we have to work beyond collections. Collections are done. I mean. Of course, you can still continue. There's still a lot of beauty aesthetics and whatever you can find in, uh, but for the historian, I think that's pretty much uh, said and done. Uh, we have to move forward. We have to look for photographs. We have to look for the, even the press. I mean, even the press hasn't been exploited in those ways. To see, for example, that that famous uh, photograph of, the, um, of the, the, the kids in the deaf and dumb school, um, Hamidian marvel, which is part of the uh, the albums, the famous albums, that it has been recycled seven or eight years later in Servet Funun. That's interesting. It gives right. you a sense of how, and you know, it's it's so. There's a lot of work that can be done. Um, I'm not saying that we're going to find archives that were. Uh, until now, uh, hidden or something. No, there's a lot of work in, in trying to unearth and trying to figure out what this corresponds to. Uh, but yeah, uh, to give you a practical example, in this vernacular photography uh, um, essay, I've used a series of four photographs I found in the Ottoman archives, the Ottoman state archives, of uh, low-level um, employees of the Hazine Hassa, of the privy treasury. And what's fascinating is that they are all posing identically with their hands folded in front of their belly uh, and with a very, very mediocre prop in the back. So, and they're Abdullah photographs. By Abdullah standards, this is exactly what a collector would throw away, saying this is this is the pits of Abdullah. But what's interesting is that these four guys, different guys, have exactly the same pose, and that this pose, you can name it. It's what in Turkish is called El Penche Divan. It's the sign of uh, uh, obsequiousness and, and of, of uh, respect submission, which you still take in Turkey when in front of a superior to whom you want to pay homage. And, and, uh, and that's what they're... And you can link that to miniature painting, 
because it's a pose that you find in miniature paintings every time you have the Sultan and his court, everybody's standing in that particular way. And these little underlings from the, uh, the treasury are doing exactly the same thing because they're being photographed for their master, uh, Abdul Hamid. And there, Abdullah is abandoning all his Orientalist and or European conventions to, uh, to respond to a very particular need, that of uh, conveying a local vernacular uh, cultural way of presenting, of saying through your body that you are in awe and submission of uh, the Sultan. So that's all it takes. So we have to move uh, beyond the conventions into the more natural, the more vernacular. So I think it's safe to say that anyone who visits the exhibition, they'll see a lot of photographs that they've um, perhaps are already familiar with, the studio photographs, the Abdul Hamid photographs, uh, the albums and the, the costume albums, but they'll also see um, some additional stories about these familiar objects that they may not have um, known before. And on top of that, they'll also see a lot of perhaps new kind of genre of photography that they, they may not have seen before. For example, um, phot vernacular photography, such as mines or um, laborers, um, medicine, medical photography, criminal photography. So they can see all of that at the exhibition um, at RCAC. Just one thing I would like to add. There's so much you can say uh, in, uh, through an exhibition. You're supposed to use a minimum of, of uh, words and whatever. So whatever we haven't been able to say in the, in the uh, exhibition, we've put in our essays. Yes. And at the end of the essays, there's what we call an album, mm -hmm. uh, taking up the, uh, the term that was so uh, popular at the time, where we've regrouped photographs that we think are conducive to some rethinking about uh, photography. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what our way of opening up the debate in another direction, yes. uh, beyond uh, the conventions. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with the with the with the book than with the exhibition, mm. uh, because it's the exhibition kind of ties you up when it comes to uh, if you're a historian, you want to you know you want to write pages and pages about everything yes. and then you have the designers who tell you no yes. no way and they're right it's beautifully right. it's beautifully designed though i have to say it's it's very patu uh, that that group did an extraordinary beautifully uh, job yes and um, you know uh, they were extremely uh, sensitive to what we had to do they were interested in it so they and enjoyed it one aspect that i really liked about the design is that um, one of the problems when you exhibit albums of course is that it's a book and you can only open it to one page so um, at the exhibit they have they do a nice job where they project other images um in the case of other images in the same album so when you look right. at an object you can get a more full experience of the object so i thought that was a nice touch um, and I would just like to mention that, you know, going back to this question of kind of finding these lost archives or this lost tradition of especially provincial photography, uh, we recently interviewed um, uh, the founder of the Hosha Madian yeah. website. And, you know, and with the flourishing of his website, people from all over the world, uh, Armenian, you know, are the Armenian diaspora, who's, you know, spread all over the world now, have been sending him photographs 
yes. uh, that their families have collected right. and all sorts of material. And, you know, this is slowly going on the website and coming together exactly. in one place and we can slowly begin to access and it. And the work that's been done by Armin Marsubian on the Dildilian family. The Dildilian family is a family of photographers from Sivas who were spared by uh, the, the, the genocide. Right. Uh, and uh, their collection, some of it remains, and there's a very nice publication that was made uh, very recently, just months ago, by Armin Marsubian, based on these photographs, which gives you a sense of what's out there, right. uh, what's still out there, and how it works, because these are real photographs. These are, you know, petit bourgeois from Marzavan, from Marzifon, from uh, Sivas and whatever, who go to the photographer to have that photograph that they want to send out to their kids. You know, it's, it's, it's real photography, uh, very, very different from uh, what we see in Istanbul. Yeah, and when we, uh, when we think about just how, much, how many photographs must be just in people's houses, um, it's really impressive to think about uh, what, especially, you know, the internet and these websites can do in terms of crowdsourcing this type of material and bringing it into one place. I know, for example, this, hap this happens with documents as well. I mean, plenty of people, sure. uh, they come sure. across, they inherit um, sure. Ottoman documents and they go to the archives. Sure, um, but the amount of destruction is, is, is incredible. Every yes, move, yes. every death in a family is the cause for, the first thing that goes is generally paper. So, you know, right. uh, it's, it's terrible. And so they're very sensitive to light and heat and all, all, all these other issues. So yeah. that's also a problem. But yeah. So on that note, I would encourage our listeners who possess old photographs to uh, keep them safe and to bring them to light. Um, uh, for those listeners that would like to know more, we encourage them to go to the publication that uh, accompanies the exhibit. Again, it's called Camera uh, Otomana, Photography and Modernity in the Ottoman Empire, 1840-1914. It was put up by Kochi University Press, edited by Zeynep Çelik and Ethem Endem. And... Also, there will be a short bibliography on our website where listeners can find out more and see many of some of the photo uh, photographs that we've talked about here today. Uh, so thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you.